Welcome back to Series 3 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In this series, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with stories to share. So sit back and enjoy. Hello. Cecil Rhodes is never far from the news these days, for all the wrong reasons, it seems. His Oxford scholarship legacy, which has been enjoyed by thousands of students globally, is now controversial, and the Roads Must Fall campaign want his statue torn down at Oriel College, Oxford. A commission set up to examine the figure's future said the majority of its members supported its removal, but Oriel College said it would not seek to move the statue due to costs and complex planning processes. Now, I'm a great-grandson of one of Rhodes's pioneers. I grew up in Rhodesia and saw Cecil Rhodes as a man to admire. Indeed, my great-granddad was a pallbearer at Rhodes's funeral. So where does that leave me? It seems appropriate to dig deeper and invite Duncan Clark, author of Rhodes' Ghost, to talk to me about the man, the myth, the legend, and to try and disseminate the truth from the fiction. Duncan Clark has authored several books on Africa and worldwide issues, including Rhodes Ghost, with a long track record of writing and publication on the economics of Rhodesia, Southern Africa, Africa, and the global oil game. So, Duncan Clark, welcome to Conversations with Peter Wood. Thanks, Peter. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. Now, your book tries to lay bare the fact from the fiction. Indeed, at nearly 800 pages, it's quite a tome, which must have required a ton of research. Undoubtedly, you're well qualified to speak about the man at any length. But before we go into Cecil Rhodes, the man, can you please tell us what inspired you to produce such an epic work? Well, it was um, four years in the writing and many more of research. And for decades prior, I'd had uh, a lot of interest in the country. It's historiography, of course, Rhodes, knowledge about it. I grew up there. I um, have been to pretty well all the places where Rhodes went around the country and uh, on the borders and inside. And we have a long family history with uh, Cecil Rhodes and the pioneers. Uh, my grandfather was at Rhodes' funeral, where your grandfather was the pallbearer. Um, and uh, he had arrived in 1896. He had met Colonel Frank Rhodes and uh, he had participated in the Jameson Raid. Uh, my father uh, had a long lasting friend known as Miss Rhodes, Georgia Rhodes, the niece of Cecil Rhodes, one of two. And I met her three times, once in Salisbury and again in London, where she invited me to stay with her in Sloan Avenue and then at her country estate at Hildesham Hall, where I went. So the historical interest in the foundations of the country and roads goes back a long way. But amongst the inspiration to put this together was of course, a feeling that there needed to be a corrective to many of the, what I thought to be false narratives about roads, about Rhodesia, and uh, really uh, an unhappiness to do with too, the modern revisionism that you see around and about and pretty much everywhere these days. By all accounts, Rhodes was a fairly unostentatious man, despite being the archetypal imperialist 
indeed the the poster boy of Victorian imperialists. So how does he become this man who quite literally was compared by Punch magazine to the Colossus of Rhodes? Well, Punch actually took the moment in time um, when it published that image to cast him as the Colossus with his feet astride Africa from Cairo to Cape Town. And it was done in satire. It was a form of denigration, a way to bring him down a bit. But Rhodes himself never thought that way, that he was a colossus at all. His colossus and basically the uh, legacy he left was the state of Rhodesia and the modernity he brought through that to make the fundamental, if effect, seismic break with the feudal world that had been there before. Another, of course, was in the many legacies, the establishment of the state in a Westphalian sense, the boundaries established, which continue today, and its basis in Roman Dutch law, allied with traditional African uh, legal customary law. Also, there were, of course, many bequests. Um, he had wealth, uh, and it was not mainly for him, but for others, and a good sum of that was spent in the foundation of Rhodesia. Obviously, the most famous of these to the world at large is the Rhodes Scholars. There have been well over 8,000 of them now, plus more in the form of grants he made at charities to missions and in various kinds of aid to the Indebelli and others, and of course, in the establishment of education. Now, he was controversial, uh, but this image of him as a Colossus is false. He was rather a humble man. He took many treks in ox wagons, by horse, by foot, around the country into Rhodesia through the Pungwe Flats, which is, was no easy place at the time, uh, bearing tsetse flies and animals, and he knew the bush rather well. So he doesn't fit the stereotype of the Colossus in the way in which Punch and others have portrayed him. But Duncan, why has he become such a figure of hate? I mean, does he deserve the praise or indeed the vitriol? Clearly, even when alive, he was both loathed and loved in both the UK and Southern Africa. Well, you're right. There was criticism um, of him during his day. There was criticism of him at his, uh, in, in obituaries, for instance, from the Manchester Guardian at the time. But the hate truly is really, I think, more of a modern manifestation, a malaise, if you like. And a large part of it is based on, I think, distorted history. In effect, a cult of anti-history and anti-Western um, capitalism in the form of various revisionist uh, identities and ways of looking at Africa and the world by uh, really in effect what are minorities in large measure and built on a sort of a culture of workism. Uh, there was also much praise for Rhodes and to some extent and large extent, this has been neglected. You have to remember he stopped the Indebelli raiding, predation, slaughter, slavery of the Shona and around the plateau, even into uh, other parts of Zambezia, into Bechwanda land and into uh, into Lewinika's country. Uh, he stopped the Prazas intrusions into Manika land from the slaving of the Portuguese in that side and also funded the stopping of the slavery on the Nyasa Plateau. Um, the attitudes that have emerged have varied by country at timing. In Zimbabwe, as you will probably well know, um, after the Revolutionary War, the outcome was rather radical. It was all about overturning Rhodesia. And of course, there was an initial purge of Rhodes' statue in what was then Jameson Avenue. Uh, the iconography around 
the renaming of Rhodes Avenue, of course, and this continued in other ways, but it was always incomplete. The revolutionaries, in effect, were not really efficient. Um, and so you still have many uh, icons of Rhodes's presence there. Rhodes's grave in the Metopos is turned into a uh, place of visit by millions, and um, it has generated money for the Treasury and the Zimbabwe government. There's still Rhodes and Yanga estates and the hotel there. And he was one of the founders of the horticultural industry in that arena. And of course, uh, he founded really effectively the column in Fort Salisbury in the country. And in South Africa, of course, you have the iconic um, image of the famous house Rhodes built that had been burnt down once, Kutuskur. Uh, his name was taken for Rhodes University, where many of the funds from his estate were plowed into the establishment of Rhodes University and various other ones. But they also took down a number and then it caught fire effectively in England and Oxford and after the withdrawal or taking down of Rhodes' statue at the University of Cape Town. So I think the hate has been generated. It's more modern. Uh, it's certainly a distortion of, of, of the past and of history. I mean, he was divisive. It's well documented that Rhodes stated that if the whites maintain their position as the supreme race, the day may come when we shall be thankful that we have the natives with us in their proper position. But in the same breath, he also advocated equal rights for every civilized man south of the Zambezi. Um, that's kind of like a loaded question, a loaded statement, surely. Well, I think um, Rhodes believed um, fundamentally, and there were many quotes of Rhodes, which you know you can pick and choose to some extent, but he did believe in work. He was against um, the loafer. He was a fundamentalist in the sense of wanting meritocracy. He even criticized his own brother in Matabele and for, for, for being a loafer. And he had a fundamental belief in what I would call economic evolution, in commerce, economic growth, which led to the establishment of the towns on the high felt, the institutions that were there, the industries, markets, communications, and a much greater degree of freedom for uh, the Africans at the time compared to what the regimes had offered before under the Indabeli and slaving and predation. So it was civilized and uh, unlike in the plateau before, which was ruled by the iron fist of subsistence, um, it provided not only, if you like, general freedom, but a much greater degree of economic freedom. Now, all that took time and it did materialize over the years. He saw slavery and the feudal system that was employed by Lobengula as an abomination, and he hated what was happening across the border in southwest Africa, where the Kaiser's regime employed lynchings, floggings, and a, and a near extermination of the Herero and Nama people. In fact, just this week, the German government has just acknowledged this. Was he really the racist that people make him out to be? I think the modern concepts of racist and racism have been um, elasticized quite substantially and torn out of historical context. Uh, you could look back and think this act or that thought or that statement had a tinge of uh, whatever you wish. Um, but I don't believe he fundamentally was against native presence or uh, prosperity and the future. And that indeed was the accomplishment and legacy of uh, foundation of Rhodesia in which he was instrumental and written about as the founder. So I, I think, you know, he made many bequests to the Indabeli um, in land and food aid and, uh, and looking after them in, in, in after the, the war and after the rebellions. 
Um, he was not um, negative towards native presence. He wanted actually to cultivate their success. Uh, I think if you look into his record, Rhodes would have moved much more quickly into not just meritocracy in Rhodesia, but into the granting of economic freedom in land tenure and other matters, but was restrained by African chiefs and customary law and matters to do with history and the cultures there of the time. Duncan, let's talk specifically about the book Rhodes Ghost. It's a mm. huge tome, well-researched, but unusually written in the first person through the eyes of Rhodes. Why did you do this? Surely that fictionalizes the book somewhat. It also gives Rhodes the excuse to always speak in favor of himself rather than allowing for, I don't know, proper debate. I think if you look at debate about Rhodes, there's been a great deal already. <laughs> Um, in fact, it's enormous. And uh, I went through the 50 plus biographies of Rhodes. A couple of them are eight, 900 pages. Um, Robert Rotberg took 18 years to write his example. They've turned over every document and text. And there's much more written in documentary form, in text and online and other commentary about Rhodes. So I don't believe that, you know, Rhodes uh, in speaking through his voice is somehow um, you know, overwhelming all that, not at all. Um, the book is really uh, an historical autobiography, if I could call it that, um, where Rhodes is able to defend the claims against him, the sins that are put on his shoulders, um, sometimes without evidence, sometimes plucked out of thin air, and to take on the arguments about him and the faults he had, which he identified himself, many of them, and tried to therefore explain it to others. Um, the size of the book is, as you said, rather large. It makes a great doorstop if the wind is blowing, by the way. And um, the size and scale of it come because of the necessity to match the scale and significance of the literature about him. Uh, it's extensive too. It's got a, a very detailed bibliography and historiography. It was built on history. It's not a pure fiction. The fiction in it is quite minimal. It's more about getting inside his mind to see what he thought about the geopolitics, the personalities, and the uh, conditions at the time when he took actions. So the model is different. It's innovative, yes, it's unknown, but um, it is, I think, um, a, a, also a work of self-criticism. And there's plenty of that included in Rose's Ghost. Mm. People speak of the Rhodesian pioneers as mercenaries and land grabbers, when in fact, as you point out in your book, everything was above board and agreements were made between Lobengula and the Mashona chiefs and Queen Victoria. I'm well aware of the negative impact of colonialism and the East India Company in South Asia and the Americas, but no one simply marched into what was then known as Zambezia and took over the land, as is often described in the scramble for Africa. Rhodes never had any interest in occupying Matabili land. So what happened? How did Matabili land become part of Rhodesia? Good point. And I think here we have to think of the facts. Um, the pioneers um, were selected carefully. They were and formed part of what became called, as I've described, the Great Rhodesian Trek. It was very different to the Boer Trek uh, from 1836 up through the Orange and over the Val River. They brought skills and assets. They brought the first electricity, if you like, first lighting, and they brought literature. Uh, the land uh, issue is complicated. Um, 
initially the idea was that they would look at the workings of uh, the gold mining and ancients. There was a thought of a second rant there in the north. Uh, this didn't materialize. There was a failure, if you like, of that mineral opportunity. But it did, in the end, lead to a substantial mining industry in Rhodesia. Uh, land was apportioned and allocated. Um, eventually, it led to a very successful uh, estate agriculture and plantation economy, one of the largest employers in the country. Uh, about the demography, the reality is that it was not heavily settled. Demography was very light in those days. There was concentrated demography in Matabili land uh, under Lobangula. Um, there was much more displaced demography across the high felt, low felt, mid felt to the east, and uh, where effectively both parts of the country established reserves. The Rudd Concession, which was the agreement with Lobangula under Royal Charter, and uh, was one that had obligations. Um, it was not for Matabele land, as you say. Mashona um, land was actually the only place to where the um, pioneer column went. Um, they established treaties with the local chiefs around, done by Frederick Courtney Salou and others, and also with Matasa and Manika land as well. And Madabili land enjoined the Mashala land, Manika land dimension of the country only in 1893. And this was after a war with the Indabeli that was largely, I believe, provoked by Lobangula in acts of war um, around Fort Victoria. And of course, um, this was put down rather quickly. Lobangula himself um, fled Bulawayo, burnt his crawl, burnt his capital. And then you had the rebellions in 1896, which led to more slaughter. 10% um, of the whites, if you like, the settlers were genocided then. And uh, one conclusion you can draw from all of this, despite the turbulence that all that involved, is that it ended slavery for the Shona. And not only them, uh, they were regarded by the Indabeli as maholi, the unclean ones, and were given a rather rough time. So when you look at the overall picture, I think um, the idea that the pioneers were mercenaries, uh, land grabbers, is a, is a lazy way of describing uh, true history as it really took place. Mm. Duncan, was Lobengula tricked by Rhodes, or was he the trickster who simply played his hand too far? I think, you know, you're looking at the personality and power of Lobangula, he was no neophyte. He came to power in a dynastic war after Mzilikazi died. He signed the Red Concession in 1889. He agreed to the terms. Uh, they were negotiated with the king and his indunas, uh, his trusted uh, acolytes, and most of them agreed. Um, then it led to sort of backtracking, perfidy, retractions, and acts of bad faith from Lobangula. And finally, in 1893, he went on a war footing. He positioned his militia and his MPs in different parts of the country. He sent them to Fort Victoria. He took on the settlers. He took a gamble and he lost, but he was no fool. He was aware of the geopolitics around and about. They were swirling and changing. The Boers had avaricious eyes across the Limpopo. The Portuguese in the East wanted to join Portuguese East Africa with Angola. The Germans wanted to get German Southwest Africa tied up with Tanganyika. And there were others, private and other concessionaries, who wanted to get in on the act. So Lobangula knew about all this. He was um, really informed to, to a large extent in this great game, and he lost. Bulawayo 
was burnt by Lerben Gula. He fled north. He refused amnesty from Jameson and the uh, settlers, and he died an ignominious death in 1894, somewhere north of Bulawayo and south of the Zambezi. Mm. Of course, Rhodes re arranged his own funeral, and he chose to be buried at World's View, the, the place of kings, also seen as the spiritual home of the Indabeli people. But not all were impressed by his choice. Some histor historians have said it was a form of cultural appropriation that he should be buried in Matopos, a highly significant Indabeli sacred ground, thus making him immortal or king-like. I've heard these and read these, and of course I treat with them in Rhodes' Ghost, but there are many myths here. Um, he chose Will's view by chance. He was trekking on horseback in the Metopos one day when he came across this site. Uh, he did not arrange all his funeral rites. Um, he had a lot of friends and various interests from the Cape to the north, and there were three funerals in Cape Town, uh, in, in the Parliament, in uh, Bulawayo, in the Drill Hall, and of course, and at Will's View in the Matopos. Um, these were mostly arranged and organized by his colleagues, uh, mostly by Rhodesians. Um, Zilikazi, I think Rhodes knew, was buried in the Matopos, but uh, Rhodes never saw himself as someone who had to be buried there because of the Indabeli position there. Um, indeed, when the various troopers who had uh, invaded Nzilikazi's cave and uh, ransacked it. It was Rhodes who provided the restitution to it. Uh, in the Matopos, it has a long history of African presence. Um, it was never in the belly only, and only in the belly from 1840, when the Indabeli arrived on the Great Plateau. It was in Jeli, and uh, in effect, the cults and the um, kind of spiritual components there were acquired and taken over by the Indabeli as well. Um, the Indabeli also, uh, subsequent to the rebellions and, and Rose's presence in the country, the time of his burial, have acted to protect his grave. They were there at his um, funeral rites. They camped there. They brought thousands there. They three times gave him the royal salute by Yeti. And this has never been accorded to any other white man in Africa, um, not in that part of the world in Zambezia, at least. It was, of course, given to Zerikazi. It was never given to Robert Mugabe, another example. And as for immortality, well, Rhodes was really, um, I wouldn't call him totally an atheist, but he was not a dedicated Christian. I don't think he sought immortalization uh, in the hope to be uh, in heaven, um, there's been a book about the cult of Rhodes and this and that, but when you look into it very carefully, you really find that uh, he was a rather modest character. Uh, he could have had and never desired or requested a burial in Westminster in, or in any other cathedral. He chose nature's cathedral in a simple set of rocks, not necessarily the most prestigious, not the highest in the country. You could have gone to Inyanga for that, to the Inyangani Mountains. And um, he basically was uh, deemed Rhodesian by his last will at the end of his life. So he buried, he buried himself and, if you like, chose to be a Rhodesian at the end. Now, let me throw a spanner in the works here. Was Cecil Rhodes gay? My mother swears that his private secretary, Neville Pickering, was his lover. 
Pickering died in Rhodes' arms, and by all accounts, the funeral was extraordinary. To quote one report, Rhodes, who had hardly left his friend's bedside, was devastated, and visibly so, with Rhodes being openly grief-stricken, his tears punctuated by bursts of high-pitched laughter. Uh, I, you know, have read all of these, and I've heard it talked about on documentaries <clears throat> on the famous BBT film, and in books it's been asserted that he was, and maybe he was, I don't know. And it's yes or no, perhaps, or maybe he was mm. sometime and not the rest. But what is clear to me, and I've decided, I've, I've, I've discussed that at length, is that he was homosocial. He did prefer the company of men. Uh, he did have apostles, if you like. He was always in company of um, trekkers and people on the march and the wagon and the pioneers and the settlements in Bulaway and elsewhere. But he also had relationships of um, equality and significance with women. One was with Olive Schreiner. I don't mean um, sexual relationships, but one of, of, of an admiration until she penned uh, Trooper Peter Halkett in Mashonaland. That was a derogatory tract about him and the pioneers. And also, for example, the Times correspondent in London, Flora Shaw. Um, but you know, when you look at this claim about whether he's gay or not, to me, it's largely irrelevant. Um, I think that in 2021, um, and if you said this about somebody of that stature now, it would be inconsequential and even be regarded as a slur. So I think this mesmerization of it, in fact, a lot of it came in the 70s and 80s, um, is really not the biggest point to, 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 to Rhodes' whole life and totality of um, uh, impact in the world. Okay. Well, look, we're almost out of time. So I'm going to end with quite a long piece. So bear with me. I mean, there have been plenty of biographies written about Rhodes. Rhodes' ghost is one of the few to try and address the misinformation out there. Most contemporary biographies show him in an inverse light. I'll read a passage from your book, which describes just what many people home and abroad felt about the man. He's been made out to be falsely heroic, illiberal, lacking in vision, a flawed visionary, cynical, a man with few original ideas, an arrogant chauvinist, driven by desire to make money, perpetually indebted and paradoxically wealthy by accident, one who almost ruined Africa, mediocre intellect, strangely ignorant, a poor thinker, lacking any strategy, an opportunist, arrogant, temperamental, dishonest, deceitful, often involved in trickery, grandiose, secretive, defensively aggressive, a classic narcissist, prone to rough manners, overcourse language, a drunkard, impulsive, moody, depressed, irascible, deluded, vain, obsessed with immortality, beset with an Oedipus complex, childlike, a misogynist, a repressed homosexual, surrounded by sycophants, prematurely aged, congenitally disloyal, anti-Africana, pro-Africana, a calculating autocrat, and a self-serving philanthropist. I mean, it goes on and on, actually. I'll let you answer that. <laughs> well, these are a synoptic of some of the accusations or sins levied upon Rhodes. And I think you could say that he's, um, that few people um, have been as damned as he has, if you like, by a whole slew of biographers from all continents, historians and commentators. Um, and equally, 
there are others, his, his um, colleagues and people who knew him, and all of those people mostly didn't know him at all, never met him, uh, who had much to say about his virtues, his achievements, and his legacies. Um, I think all of those points are put in that extremely long paragraph in order to summate the kind of claims against Rhodes, and all of them are dealt with blow by blow in accusations in the book to be debunked and seen as flawed largely. Um, they're really incorrect overall and a, and a poor summary of the record. I think what you do see in history and, and about Rhodes and the biographies and elsewhere is no balance sheet, no measure of the good and the bad. And in fact, that very argument is dismissed by the modern critics as an excuse to Rhodes. So I think you've got to look at uh, all of his achievements and take account of some of these and uh, look at them in the light of the history and you'll find that there's a really a net positive to his life and, and story. Well, if anyone wants to find out more about the history of Rhodesia and Rhodes, it's worth buying Rhodes Ghost, which is available on Amazon. Clearly, everyone has differing and in many cases, incorrect ideas about this extraordinary and complex man. Duncan, I'll end with a quote from your book as seen through the eyes of Cecil Rhodes. My memory has been reduced to the minimal. Students rarely study the full facts and context of my life and times. I am, for many, a persona non grata, off limits. Much of my past has been washed away, cleansed. I suppose in modern parlance, he has been canceled. <laughs> well, um, I've wrote the book really as a foundation to the origins of our country, our history, our life, if you like, yours and mine, to Rhodesia. And I'm completing now a bookend called The Last Rhodesians, about the Rhodesians, their identity, culture, and generations post-1948 to date now. And this is a literature that will look at the Rhodes, Zimbos, Zims, and hybrids thereof as seen in history and literature and thought, and it should come out towards the end of this year or early next year. Um, but I think when you look at Rhodes's memory, it has been distorted. Um, it has not been the same at all stages of time and history. And in the modern parlance, it, it's been degraded quite considerably. And on that note, Duncan Clark, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and learning more about the history of Rhodesia. Thank you for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you, Peter. Much appreciated. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.